0: Well, if you have been following along with the story of David and Saul, and right about at this time, you're standing back and saying, There seems to be something fishy going on here. You see, David, since his very early scenes in this whole story, has miraculously survived bears and lions. And giants, I mean, literal giants? He sits playing the harp and spears are thrown at him and he escapes and evades all of them? He seems to have led a charmed life. Saul, on the other hand, can't catch a break. He's king but he can't defeat a little shepherd boy with all the armies of Israel. We see that he makes all these efforts to maintain his power and to secure a future for him and his his family, but everybody starts to leave him. All of his efforts wind up losing more power. He seems almost fated in his demise. In our chapter, that sense of some all-controlling power starts to bubble up to the surface. It has grown so strong that everyone begins to recognize it. David sees it. All of David's men start to recognize it. And at last, even Saul begins to recognize it. Now think about some you know, novel or perhaps a play I know some people went over to the Edgerton Park to see Shakespeare in the park. You watched the, the, uh, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. Um, and, you know, as you know, maybe even from the title, um, things don't really end well for Romeo and Juliet. Shouldn't be a spoiler alert at this point in your life. And you see that throughout the play. You go into the play, you know things are not going to go well. So you can pick up on all this foreshadowing that happens and the little hints that are there that that they're going to die. Now imagine if the characters, midway through, start to recognize that Shakespeare's writing this story and he's got a particular agenda for their lives. How would they react? How would that change their behavior? Actually, it might be a fun play to watch sometime. But it brings us to this idea of of God's providence, this governing hand over all of life. And it, of course, raises some serious questions. I mean, for many of us, it typically churns up some serious fears. Well, what does that mean for my life? Does it mean that I don't have freedom? And of course, what about the problem of evil? If God's in control of everything, then what is our answer for things like Hurricane Harvey or or tragic illness or or some accident that happens that that takes life and limb? Those questions. Those questions come up so frequently and so often. In fact, um, they're important questions not to dismiss, but I think that So frequently, when we talk about providence, those are the questions that we put into sermons. Those are the questions that, in fact, we've addressed here many times. But they shouldn't be the place where we start. That shouldn't be the starting place when we talk about God's providence. Because when we start there, we take our eye off the great blessing that it is to be aware of God's providence. It is a blessing to know That God does have a plan. That there's purpose to the universe. That there's meaning and direction to your life. And more than that, that that plan isn't hidden. The plot's not secret that we have to find out. It's a plot that God reveals to us and continues in his word to explain and to go up into depth. David and Saul both acknowledge that plot in our passage. But far from inducing fear, it actually leads them to freedom. And it produces in them some pretty amazing reactions. So let's turn to this passage. Let's look at it. Uh, but Before we do, let's ask God to bless it. Will you pray with me? Lord, uh, please help us to see not just this vignette, this, this small story. But help us to have eyes on the bigger story, the story that um, is moving all of human history and that encompasses our lives. Help us to have eyes of faith and to uh, walk in obedience to it. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we uh, get to chapter 24 in 1 Samuel, David has been on the run for the last five chapters. Saul is in deep pursuit He's been obsessed with catching David and indeed killing him. And in spite of all these circumstances, we as readers have already been clued in on where things are going. And in fact, David knows it. He's been given the word of the Lord. In chapter 17, the prophet of God came and anointed him with oil. He is going to be the next king. And we also know how things are going to wind up with Saul. Yes, he right now is sitting on the throne. He is marshalling the whole of Israel's armies. And yet we know from chapter 16 that this kingdom is being torn from him. That he will no longer be king. But in the meantime, Saul still powerful. And David is still weak. You see, we know the promises. We kind of see the direction it's going to move into. But we don't see how it's going to come about. We don't know how little David is going to overcome Saul and his armies. But now suddenly, in our chapter, both Saul and David unintentionally wind up in the same city, in the same cave. And our mind can't help but think about God's amazing providence. Saul has been given over, it seems, to David. Saul comes gift-wrapped, or perhaps unwrapped. I don't know the delicate way to say this. Saul is entering into this cave to relieve himself. The Hebrew uh, uses the euphemism, covering his feet. Saul is in the cave to go to the bathroom. He's squatting down. Uh, I can't think of a more vulnerable place to be. And of course he's alone. He wanders away from his armies as as was right at the time. And and even in Leviticus, Leviticus it describes that You know, you you go away from the armies to do your business. And that's where Saul was, by himself. But of course, we know he's not by himself. He chooses the very cave that David and all his men have been hiding out in. And David's men can't believe their luck. Look at this. Here is the king of Israel that's been hunting you down, David. And he's ripe for the plucking. They're so excited. They want to start breaking out into song. They want to sing the song that we've sung this morning. This is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. He's right there. Let's go get him. And so then David takes out his sword. He sneaks up on Saul. And he begins to cut. Saul is clueless. Doesn't see it coming at all. And then David stops. He puts his sword back and he starts to tremble. Why? Why does David stop? And here's the really puzzling thing why does he repent? In verse 5, it says that his heart struck him. And then he tells his men, he says, Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. And we're saying, David, up, lighten up here. You just cut his robe. You don't need to go into repentance. But the surprise isn't that David's just being neurotic about this uh, particular cutting of the robe. But if we've been reading all of this along as God's providential hand, then we're really surprised. Why does he stop? Is he actually going against what God has clearly put on a tee and set up for him? You're thinking, how clear does it have to be to know God's will? Here's Saul by himself, vulnerable, ripe for you to take advantage. David, don't you believe in God's providence? David, are you not walking by faith? Now, I want to I actually argue that David's moment of temptation here, the moment where he almost kills Saul, is actually a denial of God's providence. And not a belief in it. That his his joyful friends who want him to act here are actually rejecting God's providence and not embracing it. How so? Let's look. It is true that God told David what the future will hold for him. That he will be king. And he knows that Saul won't be. He knows that Saul's days are numbered. But you see, David sees that um, prophecy from God as not simply mere foreknowledge. It's not that, that God just looked into the future and says, I see a world, David, where you will be the king. God wasn't just saying this to David. He was declaring to David that that was his plan, God's plan. But what he never affirmed was that David should take it upon himself to bring about a revolution. It's one thing for David to believe in God's promise that he would one day be king. It's another that that would assume that it is his right to act and to bring that about himself. What was never affirmed is that David should see that it is his role to kill the king. In fact, David acknowledges that this step would actually be sin. Verse 6, he says that if he kills Saul, that it's an act not just against Saul, but it's an act against the Lord. You see, David knew that the Lord's anointed was much bigger than a person, it went beyond Saul. The Lord's anointed was an office, it was a role. It didn't matter so much who was in that role, but it was something that God had designated, that Saul represented something much deeper, something that was connected to a promise and something that looked forward to a greater promise to be fulfilled, something that went past Saul or even David himself to the Lord's Christ, to the Lord's anointed, And as we've seen before, the robe that Saul wore is significant. It wasn't just what he was wearing that day. It represented his office. It was his uniform. I mean, just as we would say that the the robe that I wear here to preach means that we should be listening to this, not simply as Kevin who has some ideas about what the Bible says, but I sit under authority and I represent here An office of a pastor, called by God. That's exactly what uh, David is wrestling with at this time. We know that the robe has that significance because back when uh, Samuel delivered God's prophecy that the Lord would tear the kingdom away from, from Saul, Samuel grabbed Saul's robe and it tore. A very dramatic representation that the kingdom would be taken away from him. It didn't matter how persuasive all the signs that were around were. It didn't matter how it seemed as though the stars were aligning and God was bringing about all these circumstances to say, this is the time to act. David never had a word from God telling him that this would be the way that he'd get the throne. This teaches us very significantly about how we are supposed to discern God's providence. For it's one thing to believe that God controls every atom and every molecule in the world. That he controls everything in the universe. It's another thing to believe that you have the ability to read that and discern it. To have a right interpretation of it. Now you might say, well didn't David have this word? I mean look at even our passage. Verse 4 says, His friends all say, here's the day in which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. But the thing is, we don't have any record of that statement coming from God to David, or to his men, or to anybody. God tells him he will be king, and Saul will not, but he never says, do whatever you want with Saul. David knows that. David can even say that a move to kill the anointed one is a move to sin. That's what he tells his men. And he begins to see here that his men were just fudging the details. In fact, their words are closer to the serpent's words to Adam, back in the Garden of Eden, when he conveniently misquotes God, summarizing God's word, but in such a way that that draws Adam into doing something that he knows was wrong. As David cuts the robe, he knows that he's being tempted to do something that was not right. This is the danger of, of uh, what is often that open-door theology. You know that, right? That we, we pray for something that we desire so much. God, God. Just open a door. And then that opportunity happens. It opens up. Maybe you've done this in your life. If you've ever had a job that you've longed for, or perhaps a relationship that you you just coveted, or, or a purchase you wanted to make, and all of a sudden there's, boom, in your bank account, money. And it's so easy to read that circumstance and to believe in God's providence and say, ah, this is from God. It's an open door. But what if it's not from God? Oh, God is in control of everything. Maybe he opened the door, but maybe he did not intend for you to go through it. And maybe there's a closed door, which is often the time and you see in Scripture, obedience means trying to open and bust down a closed door because that's walking by faith. We run into so much danger when we look at the circumstances around and try to interpret providence. Oh, God's Word is the only rule for faith and life. It's the only true interpretation of things. And if our, our obedience is trying to look into to interpret things, we are going to be far more tempted, as I know in my heart I am, to start looking at all these things and piecing together a nice little narrative that always fits my desire. Oh, I really long for this. I want this so bad. Oh, look, I got a little extra money today. That's clearly God's sign that he wants me to do this. Now, the really insidious thing The really dangerous thing is that in this case, the temptation that comes, the open door that presents itself, also would require David to sin. Remember, he said to strike down the Lord's anointed is sin. When Saul eventually dies by another hand, David is furious because he sees that person as sinning. The Lord's anointed was clearly something holy and separate. Who cares how... Off base, Saul was as a person. If God did not give him the command to do it, he knows he needed to stay his hand. This is the temptation that comes. It's the same temptation that Christ went through when Satan takes him to the heights in the Gospels and says, look, all of this is yours. You can have it. Perhaps God brought you into into your human existence here for this very reason, so that you can own the world without even going through the cross. Jesus would be going against God's revealed will. And God will never bring us into a, a scenario. He will never craft and mold the providences of the world that your only option is to sin. He'll never induce you to sin because of things that he presents in front of you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is, uh, is a wonderful passage that says that God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape. If David kills Saul here, yes, David would have gotten the kingdom, but he would have gotten the kingdom the way every other nation transfers power at that time. Through killing off your predecessor. That's the way lines went from this family to that family. But God was creating a different nation. In fact, it was Saul's deep failure. And Israel's deep failure at the time was that they wanted to be like every other nation. And God said, no. You are a different nation. You serve a different purpose. You're not supposed to act like everybody else. Yes, David would have gotten the kingdom here. If he's just viewing the world on this lower story, if God is not active there, but only according to to the way the world works, he would have gotten it. But he needs to step back and see the upper story, the story God has been crafting, the one he's been revealing to David and explaining to him about all the significance. And it's a story in where God is in control. And God is working to a particular end It's at this moment, the moment when he has this piece of robe in his hands, that he can awaken to that upper story. He awakens to see that God not only foresaw what would happen, but that God also will providentially bring it about. And he would bring it about in a way that did not involve sin. See, David's awakened to God's providence. And amazingly, Saul, too, in this passage, is awakened to God's providence. You see, up to this point, Saul had been in denial. God made it very clear that his his family line would end. And then the next chapter after that, he made it very clear that that Saul was going to have this kingdom ripped from him. But then, he doesn't vacate the kingdom. He does all he can to deny and to, to resist God's clear revelation. He pursues David because David is his threat. He slaughters the priests at the temple. He threatens his own men, all because he fears what they might bring in that would take away his power. Everyone starts to recognize that Saul's end is clear. The prophet Samuel has left him. His officials start to leave him. His own son leaves him. They're abandoning him, and yet Saul is still there trying to hang on to his power. But then, in this passage, it finally clicks. Saul gets it. God's purpose cannot be thwarted. His plan will come about. After this trip to the bathroom, David calls to him. Saul, mind elsewhere, turns and sees David holding his robe, the piece of his robe. And he finally cracks. He finally bows to God's providence. Verse 20, it says, Out of Saul's mouth, he says, Now I behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall now be established in your hand. You see, in this chapter, both David and Saul awaken to the upper story. They awaken to God's providence. And they acknowledge their past efforts that were either ignoring it or resisting it. And that that was sin. But when they make this acknowledgement of this upper story, how do they react? Would they be like Romeo and Juliet who are just scared of what Shakespeare might have in store for them? You think about David. Will that cause him to be arrogant? Knowing that this upper story will deliver his kingdom. Will it cause him to be passive? I'll never have to do anything. God's going to provide. Think about what it might do for Saul. Is it going to drive him to to depression or anxiety? Completely uh, despondent over the future that he thinks is in his hand. Neither of those things happen. But why not? Why doesn't it? It doesn't because God's providence is not fatalism. God's providence is not fatalism. Do you know the difference? It's something that Christians throughout the centuries have tried to distinguish and make clear. The concept of fatalism is frightening and dark. Because fate is just untrustworthy. It's capricious. It could blow anywhere it wants to blow. And there doesn't seem any rhyme or reason to it. And there certainly is not any good in it. Anything that we could say derives from a source of good. But to understand God's providence, we must begin not with its effects on our lives, but to understand God's providence correctly, we have to understand God and who he is. It begins in his character. It begins with his attributes Not a God randomly out there, but the God of the Bible, the God who makes himself known and reveals his character to us. If we know him, then we know that providence isn't bleak. It's good because God is good. What does that mean for our freedom? It's easy to think that an all powerful, all controlling God means that we are prisoners. Robots or slaves to some force out there. Nobody likes to be controlled. Doesn't that rob us of our humanity and our dignity? But there's a myth out there that that true humanity, that dignity is defined by our freedom and autonomy. That true human dignity is is found only in absolute self-governing where nothing is determined and everything is in our control. That is oftentimes a huge message. I want to say that's one of the biggest hurdles to Christianity. It's one of the biggest hurdles to belief in God. The belief that we're not created for self-authorship. That we're not created independent. That we should be determining our own lives. That we should be the one who determines what meaning our life should have. That it's up to you to, to chart that course and deliver any type of interpretation on the significance of life. I want to say that's a myth. I know that I'm contradicting every you know, inspirational poster out there. But it's something we need to hear because not only do I think that that's not good news, I think that absolute autonomy is not real freedom. That gets a nightmare. That doesn't deny freedom. We only find true freedom and true dignity when we're free to live according to the purpose that God has created us for. Did you get that? We only have true freedom when that freedom is found within the purpose that God has created for us. To allow an eagle to live as though it were a penguin and to think all its days it can never fly and never soar and always be stuck in the cold is to take away what it is to be an eagle. To allow the child of a king to think that she was a dog or a mouse is not to give that child dignity but is to rob her of dignity. Being independent isn't essential for human dignity. It actually denies it because we are creatures and we were made from a creator. And it's good to know this creator. And it's good to know that he created all things for a particular end and he created human life for a particular reason. There's purpose. Because there's purpose, there's value. Freedom isn't true freedom when it's autonomy. It actually is abandoning what we're made for. It isn't true dignity to abdicate the throne of glory that God has intended for you. You know, that's the real definition of sin. Oftentimes we think of sin as just these acts that we do. That sin is bad behavior or perhaps sin is neglecting to do the good thing. No, sin is seeking autonomy. Sin is, is the act of rebellion that wants to kick God off of the throne and put ourselves there. That's how God, that's how scripture understands sin. And that is the very thing that drives a wedge between us and God who has created us for fellowship with him. The really significant thing I want to stress here this morning is that God's Providence means that there's a plan. It's the assurance that there's a direction. There's a direction for life. There's a direction for history. About 15 years ago, um, Rick Warren uh, wrote a New York Times bestseller, sold a billion copies of the book, The Purpose Driven Life. And it resonated with people. Because people picked up that book and they said, yeah, I've been... Everybody tells me that, that I need to create my own purpose for life, that I need to, to be the one that, that uh, understands significance, and I'm clueless, I don't, any, I don't have any idea of why I'm here, or what I'm supposed to be or do. And so that book resonated with people. One of the problems with the book is that many people turned it into a self-help book that says these are some rules to do, and then In order to do them, you will find self-fulfillment. You will find prosperity. Actually, the point is, we don't need a rule book. We've already blown it. We've already veered off the course of human dignity. What we need is a plan to rescue our dignity. We need a purpose that God has a plan other than just to scrap humanity because we have already gone our own way. But that's the good news. That's the good news that David understands with this plan. That's the good news that Israel had as its own. That this story that involved a king, that involved an anointed one, was going to continue. The whole blessing of this, not just being about any normal nation, was that it was a nation that had a specific goal and purpose in a story. And yes, they were failures. But the the story was headed to one who would not fail, one who would redeem. David wakes up to that story that realizes it's not just about politics and one king uh, taking over another king, but that God is at work through the anointed one. That's the story that is revealed there in Ephesians 1. We heard this morning in the New Testament passage. The plan from all the fullness of time is to unite all things in Christ. But they had to be united because they were torn apart because of sin. That we were created to dwell with God and have a relationship with Him. To know Him. For heaven and earth to be one. And yet everything we did in humanity was to rip it apart. But God's amazing plan was to take that even our sin, and to work it into this amazing story of providence to an end where everything would unite in Christ. God's plan started before the foundation of the world to know every sin that you would do, every wickedness in your heart, every lust for independence, and he would work a way of redemption to call you back to himself, to love you, and to restore you. That's the good news. That's why Christ came. That's the point of the story. This upper story that we're called to look to. And what happens when we finally give up our quest for independence? What happens when we yield to this providence and we, we start to look and live by that upper story? Do we see fear that somebody else is controlling my life? Do we, fear, do we see frustration but I can't have my own way? Well, look at what happened to David and Saul. Look at their lives. Look at their reaction when they get this plan. First, look at David. Once he's able to step back from his efforts to kill and bring about the kingdom in his own way, what we find is amazing. It's at this point now he can be open about his sin. Because he knows where the story's going and can walk in light of that, he can actually admit, I was wrong to attack. My beloved friends who are with me, you were wrong to tempt me to remove this kingdom and establish my own. He's able to be vulnerable, he's able to confess. He knows that the whole point of the story was to bring his redemption. And because of that, he didn't fear God's condemnation. When you know the end of the story, where it's going, when you know that you are going to stand before the throne of God and he's going to look at you and he's going to know all of your sins and he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That doesn't leave you in fear. That leaves you say, oh God, here are my sins. Look at them. I'll do something about them. I'm not going to hide them from you. I'm going to tell you about them. David sees that freedom, the freedom not to hide from God. He sees a freedom to honor the anointed. He can actually honor Saul. He can distance himself from Saul the person and see this role. When When he approaches Saul, he says, my lord, the king, and then he bows Before him, you might think, How reckless are you being? You're bowing before the guy that's chasing you. But all those things that that David feared before, because he knows where this story is going, he can trust that this God is a loving God and he can honor the one that God put in above him in this role. Because he sees this story, he's not obsessed with justice. He's not obsessed with saying, Saul, you've been wronging me, and I am now going to exact justice here, right now. In fact, it's because he believes that there will be a day of judgment that he can actually forgive. How do you love an enemy? How do you love someone that has done something painful to you? How do you forgive? The answer is not squashing it, the answer is not putting it under a carpet or or pretending that it will go away, when you do that, you're you're always going to have this nagging resentment. You're always going to be looking for other ways you can bring that up and and use it against the person. Now, the true key to loving your enemy, to forgiving somebody who has hurt you, is a belief that there will be justice. That God will not turn a blind eye to any sin that it will be paid for. Now I know that sounds wrathful and horrible in some sense. But it's a great news that God will bring justice because he will either bring justice on that person for their sin or he will take it upon himself. He has taken it upon himself at the cross. For at the cross we see God's forgiving mercy in our lives that he has paid fully for our sin. And because God is the one who judges justly, then we don't have to judge. We, the church, should never judge. That is not our role. If we become the church that wags its finger at the world, pointing out sin and condemning it, we take God's prerogative. Yes, we can warn. Yes, we can admonish. It'd be cruel if we saw somebody running towards a busy traffic Uh, street and not say anything to them but we cannot judge we can forgive offense towards ourselves we can love our enemies because we know that God has a plan that it's in place that it's going in a direction and that he's provided a way to deal with enemies even enemies of God what about you? Are you tempted? Are you tempted to take matters into your own hands? Are you tempted to know God's destiny, His future for you, but only see it as foreknowledge? And you're anxious because you feel like you need to secure the future that you have for for you. You need to secure your good. Have you cut off others from grace because you feel the need that they need to pay for their sins? Have you cut them off from love because you want justice? You're going to live in constant anxiety, constant fear if you you stick your fingers in your ears and, and close your eyes to a God who's been in control of every molecule and every star in all of creation and not just in control of them but working towards a plan working towards an end, David begins to bow down to this. He walks by faith. He begins the whole chapter by walking by sight, looking at the opportunity he has. But then he sees God's plan, and he walks by faith. David finds true freedom. True freedom in his life by turning to God. What about Saul? How does Saul respond? once he acknowledges God's plan. For ten chapters, Saul has this hard heart. He's ignored God, he's resisted God, but notice what happens when he finally gives in. His heart softens. This David that he hated, that he pursued, that he kept saying, every time in these chapters, he's referring to that son of Jesse. Now, when he sees David, he can say, My son, David. He humbles himself. He can become loving. Verse 17, he says, you are more righteous than I. I have repaid, you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. He's able to acknowledge his wrong. He's able to throw himself on God's mercy. It's at this point where he begs for mercy for his offspring. Like they won't remove his house from him. Where are you? Are you where Saul was? Have you been reluctant? Stubborn? Resistant to the plan that you know God's direction is leading you in? Driven by a purpose, yes, but it's your own purpose. If that's the case, then knowing God's plan will always feel like a threat to you. That God's sovereignty will always feel dangerous because you have things to do. You have a goal in your life. I want to encourage you, look up. See this upper story. And see it as freedom and good news. Perhaps, maybe you're here thinking that life is random. Convinced that everything here is of your own definition but there really is no definition. Look up. God has begun a story. God has, is bringing this to completion. God has already reached the climax of that story in Christ. And he doesn't keep the plot hidden, but continues to reveal it. He wants all of us to know this story is for our good. It's a story that will lead to this table where God has reconciled all things, heaven and earth, in Christ. It is a story that we as his people need to be caught up in, to embrace, to submit to, and to rejoice. Because he wants you to live in light of that and the, the dignity and the freedom that that provides for everything else is submission to slavery. As we prepare to come to this Meal, let's take a moment and reflect and pray.